Well, I was um, earlier on in the day reading some of the announcement and, of course, I think I saw um, you know, so many million dollars being put aside for tackling the suicide epidemic here in Western Australia in particular. And I'm not sure whether it's, you know, too little, too late, but, you know, I'm more or less sceptical of making sure or ensuring that these types of resources and, you know, the financial resources are put into the right places in which you're going to benefit directly the people in need of the resource. And that obviously um, involves, I believe, two main aspects of uh, people, those that need to take benefit from that resource in terms of the prevention of, you know, them taking an action that takes their life and also those left behind in terms of this pandemic. And I've always believed that the postvention issues in our community in particular in dealing with the aftermath of suicide is most important to deal with and to date I haven't yet seen you know the government nor the main non-government organizations put any type of resource or initiative in place that looks after those that are left behind in the aftermath of suicide and in particular the children to who lose their their mothers and their fathers to suicide. And in our community and in families, we're witnessing and experiencing that now to be on a multifaceted basis. In other words, you know, there's more than the one loss. And some of your listeners may be aware of young Peter Little, or they called him affectionately Little Peter Rabbit up in Geraldton, who took his life at a very tender and young age of 11 years. And it was, I think, eight or nine months later, through the grief and through the trauma, his mother took her life. So the impact that that had on that particular family was, as you could imagine, immense. And it was, um, you know, a um, an issue that you know had created an incredible amount of trauma. And you know, again, I just believe that there should be resources that are, you know, instrumental in dealing with those left behind in the aftermath of suicide. And I'm not even sure whether you know, it comes down to a money resource. I think it's a, a human resource outside of a clinical or a academic approach, but something more compassionate in terms of humanity that needs to really deal with this, uh, you know, form of loss and grief for those who have been through it, I'm sure, and can relate to what I'm talking about. And, you know, I'm not talking about a religious um you know, uh, response, but I'm talking about a response that can help um, people to to try to come to some sort of terms in, in the grief, although they'll go through their grief process, they'll go through that loss and they'll go through a journey that goes into a lot of darkness, pain and suffering. However, I think as, you know, a society and as human beings, we could be doing a lot more for those that have entered into that darkness and, and will do so in the future. Robert, uh, uh, we've spoken to you on the on the show many times before about the the struggles of Dumbatung to uh, you know maintain its uh, its own structural integrity, and of course, Dumbatung's a you know, for our listeners who don't know is a, a, a grassroots organisation that's uh, you know been at uh, you know working with you know the Aboriginal community here and around Perth for for many years. Uh, money going to I guess there's, you know, the clinical kind of approach, the the experts to basically uh, empowering and, you know, supporting a whole bunch of, uh, you know, white folk or non-Aboriginal folk where, 
you know, surely the, the people most uh, with the most capacity to help uh, Aboriginal people and who are most uh, desperately needed to, you know, to support their own community is, of course, uh, organisations such as your own. Well, look, I think, Karun, with suicide in particular and right throughout the country now and globally, there's a whole academic and clinical process in terms of, I suppose, raising the issue, discussing it within forums, seminars, workshops, conferences. And I think what it does, if you, you know, haven't got access, if you like, to the human face of what you're referring and talking to, you tend to lose, again, the, you know, the humanity. And I think that, you know, in a lot of cases, that's what's happening in terms of this pandemic is, is that it's becoming now nearly a position of where, you know, a lot of people, you know, are discussing it outside of that, that humanity of what we spoke about earlier and what people go through when they when they suffer this loss it nearly becomes like you know many things in our society have become in terms of human suffering it becomes industrialized and systems and governments make money out of it and you know yeah. when you look at the incarceration rates in western australia here and in particular with the juvenile incarceration and detention you know every time one black man's jailed in Western Australia, you know, 10 white men get rich from that, so to speak, from lawyers to, you know, um, uh, service delivery companies to the prison systems and wardens and so on and so on. It nearly becomes a an industry to, to keep and to maintain that sickness within our, in our community. And the same could be said for mental health and in particular the end result of what is the single most complex issue of mental health, which is suicide, because in a lot of ways, when a lot of our young people are admitted into what you'd call, let's say, the front line of services in the sense of where people's illnesses are, you know, uh, are treated and seen firsthand, and I'm talking about into the, you know, emergency rooms at general hospitals 24-7, look, you know, a lot of our families have been saying when they're, young people, the juveniles, young sons and daughters are being rushed through either, you know, different episodes of psychosis or overdoses and having to be brought back by Narcane on, and in those emergency rooms. And in them rooms there, you've got, you know, doctors, you've got nurses, you've got all the frontline workers, you've got social workers, clinicians, you know, nurses, you've got ambulance drivers, you've got all of society's prime position first line services and yet when the morning light comes those young people are discharged there's never an intervention into families to let them families know that them young people had been in those emergency rooms the night before and as a result of that they seek out in the morning light the very nature of you know the remedy to the sickness in which they're facing through mental health and through drug addiction and you know a lot of these young people are slipping between the between the cracks and 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 a lot of passing away a lot of dying in in you know inner city street alleyways and you know in their own homes because you know society doesn't follow up Karun these these really important interventions and you know I don't think that can be you know measured off in terms of putting you know so many million dollars into mental health or you know a financial sort of input into mental health um, restitution I think it really takes a more compassionate and a more more caring society than what we've got this society seems to now to have been built on 
greed, the pursuit of, you know, consumerism and, you know, how much one can accumulate the dream that, you know, we're all born into believing we need to pursue. And, you know, in, in, in pursuing the sorts of values in which this society is created for us, we seem to leave our fellow man behind in the shadows of their own despair. And, you know, I've always stated that, you know, in the sickness of the minds and spirit of a lot of people, we can never afford to turn away from those in in in, in need the most. We need to um, to ensure that you know our humanity is connected and we and we move on. And maybe you know again, it's you know value systems that we need to relook really at in terms of how social network systems have taken away from us as people, like we refer to as the campfire syndrome, where we can as people sit down and and talk through the fire to each other, which renders us, you know, uh, in connection, whereas through technology and, 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 and social network systems, we seem to think we've advanced technologically in terms of, you know, communication, but in some ways it pulls us as people further apart. And I think we're seeing in the darkness and the chaos as the world plunges even deeper into war and famine and, and uncertainty, the results of these sorts of values in which the Western world has got us pursuing and I think that's why it's important that you know indigenous values and and the way in which um, you know indigenous belief systems before Aboriginal people were dispossessed and disinherited from their land and their religion of the basis of maybe healing um, this type of society that's created the problems that we're talking about and that we're faced as people um, against it's insurmountable odds in which we need to um, you know, perceive a way around and, and forward before, you know, we get ourselves into a position of where maybe, you know, we'll, we'll have lost forever yeah. the um, the very important values to keep to keep us connected as people. You know, Dhammatang has been working for 30 years uh, in a very unique way and as far as, uh, you know, working as a, an organisation addressing suicide, you've done so in a very holistic way and... Uh, I wonder if you could just share with us a little bit. I know you've recently had uh, a 30-year uh, release of a, a DVD, the historiography of Dumbatung. Could you talk to us a bit yep. about uh, about uh, the event where you've uh, you've yep. released this? Well, that was certainly a very challenging edit, and we're in the editing suites for gee, I think 12 months or more, shifting through, as you say crew in 30 years of, of footage in all different sorts of formats, going back to Bidicam, going back to even old Polaroid stills and, you know, looking at the development and I suppose Dumbatung's journey through that 30 years and trying to put into a hour production, um, you know, the more meaningful um, aspects of our work. And I suppose at the end, you can only do what you can with what you've got. And um, and I think what we produced was something, again, very important in terms of not only reflecting and looking at that journey in terms of the healing work of Dumbatung, but also early in Dumbatung's history, the resistance um, initiatives as well, such as the Kayana festivals, the prison art programs. And, you know, Dumbatung merged from a a very strong political resistance organisation, which was a and is a grassroots advocacy for what we would call the silenced or the oppressed voice in our community, to a very important healing concept through Selena's work here, which um, 
you know, we call the Kudumara Quad Women's Healing Programs. But, of course, when you look at the journeys of Dumbatung, you look at that program, the healing program, that was, you know, able to be, you know, initiated after, you know, Dumbatung taking on the tender for the state-based redress program where we did over 200 stories for our people to whom had suffered abuse and neglect when they were in institutionalised care. So, you know, those sorts of initiatives in terms of the redress program, you know, it enabled us the insight and the, the um, I suppose, the knowledge to, to not only understand the stolen generations and the political theme, if you like, of the stolen generations, but, you know, what happened to those young kids' lives on a, on a day-to-day basis. And, you know, it's a horrific um, you know, traumatic history, the history of this country. There is no doubt a, a secret war that's been raging now for well over 220 years in terms of Aboriginal human rights in this country. And, you know, again, when you look at the ingrained trauma, you look at, you know, what happened from the time of the killing fields through to the implementation of the Native Welfare Act, which forcibly allowed the removal through legislation of Aboriginal children from their, you know, from their mothers and their fathers, in through to the statistics now of incarceration and, 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 and suicide and the pandemic of suicide, you can, you can see the ongoing genocide of what Aboriginal people have had to face. And, you know, I can refer back also to my own education uh, experiences crewing in the education systems, as I would know, would be the same for most um, Australians. And of course, you know, having access and, and, and knowledge and information to the true history of this country was never part of the curriculum. So, in a lot of ways, people's minds have been censored to deceit and and and, and to lies of of how great this country is as a multi you know cultural country and what it offers to the world platform. It's a hypocrisy and it's a and it's a it's a lie. And I think the one thing that I've you know put myself in terms of my position in my life is to you know certainly seek out some form of at least truth as it is so that you know when it comes my time to pass on I can you know with my grandchildren pass off to them some truth and not this censored form of deceit and uh, and hypocrisy that a country like Australia has been built on. It's built on a lie. It's 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 built on the dispossession of 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 of, of Aboriginal people and and the disinheriting of Aboriginal people from their you know, cultural and their religious belief systems. And you know it's a genocide that I believe is probably the most severe genocide that a race of people have ever suffered in the history of mankind because it's a form of genocide that still is active after, you know, 220 years of forced occupation. Um, Robert, given um, this sort of lack of acknowledgement of, um, of, of the history um, of, of this country in terms of its, its relationship with Aboriginal people, um, particularly when it comes to, I, I suppose, things like the education system and, and the impact of this history on people sort of ongoing, um, do you think that... Um, anti-suicide programs like the one that's, you know, um, been mentioned on the weekend. Do you think that there's any potential for um, for there to be pressure placed on the people involved in that to basically start talking about the context? And you know, oh, look, certainly, Caroline, and I think you've raised a very, very important issue because, you know, as I said earlier, it's not even a monetary factor in terms of what you can develop as a program, let's say, in relationship to deterring 
suicide in our community. You've got to understand as a society that the pandemic of suicide in our community stems back to the very things I'm just relating to, which is the dispossession of Aboriginal people from land, from culture, from their value systems, the indoctrination of you know, their minds to introduce daily in forms of, of religious belief systems and, 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 and everything in which Aboriginal people have suffered from the time that the forced occupation happened on our lands to now is the result of the, of the disparity of what creates the difference between Indigenous and non-Indigenous suicide. And I think that, um, you know, suicide in our community, and, you know, I've spent a lot of time talking to a lot of people and a lot of families about their suffering and their loss. And, look, we know as Aboriginal people that this stems from the very nature of the issues in which the government don't want to address and, and certainly aren't on the agendas of these you know, national and international conferences and workshops. And that's why it's hard for Dumbatung. And one of the reasons in which Dumbatung is now under siege and attacked by government and has been for a long time, because, of course, the truth and the issues dealing with the truth of what's creating this, this, this Holocaust, an ongoing Holocaust for Aboriginal people, the government certainly don't want raised, neither do you know, other interests within um, this country. And obviously that would include the industrialists who can change governments like you know, executives of mining companies and agricultural interests. You know, the Aboriginal issue and, and the Aboriginal complexity, if you like, or what the white people would see as a complexity to land rights issues, is the biggest challenge to the very fabrication of the uh, structure of this society here in Australia. Its whole wealth has been built upon the theft of the minerals that lay under the grounds that are owned by Aboriginal people and have been owned by Aboriginal people since the beginning of time, are owned by Aboriginal people as we speak now in the present and will be owned by Aboriginal people forever. That's the way that it is. The dreaming stories make up the um, wealth of those minerals in which the Western world, you know, dig to sell onto the market. And I was only thinking earlier about, you know, the Argyle diamond mines. And if I can say, I saw a program, I think it was on one of the Foxtel stations of where one ring uh, that was auctioned with an Argyle diamond in the United States of America recently bought a $750,000 bid, one diamond, one pink diamond, and you you know imagine the wealth that they would have taken out from those diamond mines, and then of course what the Aboriginal people have received the pittance in terms of royalties or whatever the case, and you know not only here in Australia but Africa, it's a global issue in relationship to to Indigenous people, the land and the right to the ownership of the land. It's a global war that's going on really between value systems that are set that have uh, given credence to the way in which, you know, our people live their life since time immemorial, many, many thousands and thousands of years before white um, people evolved.